Well, I had the opportunity about two years ago, in fact, it was almost exactly two years ago, uh, to go to, to Cuba uh, on, a, on a mission trip. So a team of about eight adults, I think there were eight of us, um, from um, my church in Houston, where we were before we came here. Uh, we went to a little rural village in the eastern half of, of the island of Cuba for the purpose of door-to-door evangelism. It was knock on doors or walk through doors where they didn't have a door per se um, and sit down with people in their homes and simply tell them about the good news and, and tell them the gospel. And I found myself boldly, fearlessly proclaiming Christ, preaching the gospel, telling people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation in a way that I usually had shied away from, in a way that I often had held back from for various fears or insecurities or the thought that maybe this person is going to think I'm a weirdo or it's going to be awkward or whatever. And so in my, I found in my own life, you know, back in Houston, back at home, it was a lot harder for me uh, to engage with people in that way. But I found myself in these homes in Cuba, fearlessly, even through the a language barrier and with a translator, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and offering uh, the hope of, of new life and eternal life through faith in Jesus. And I vowed to myself to let this evangelistic boldness and fervor continue when I got back home. I can do this. I can preach the gospel. I can talk to people about Christ. There's no reason I shouldn't be able to do this back home. And so I made this vow to myself, I will continue my evangelistic zeal when I return home. Well, probably not too hard to imagine that, you know, life happens and routines happen and I start to pick up old patterns and those familiar fears start to creep back in. And, and before long, uh, I, I was back in that very same place of every time that I saw an opportunity to speak about Christ, there came this, this fear, sometimes totally irrational, but just this barrier between me and the opportunity to speak to somebody about the Lord. And so I had continued to struggle in seizing opportunities for gospel witness. I don't know if you can identify with that at all. People who have been in the church for any length of time and, and heard messages and stories and appeals to like share your faith and go tell people about Jesus. I don't know if I'm the only one who has ever experienced fears like that, that have kept me from faithfully proclaiming Christ wherever I am. But I hope to do two things in the message today from uh, this passage in John chapter four that we're going to look at. I hope to do two things. First of all, I hope to convince you that joining Jesus on mission, that is carrying the gospel to the world around us in word and in deed, is the most important thing that you can do with your life. Following Jesus on mission, joining him on mission to the lives of people around us with the gospel is the most important thing that your life could be about. So I hope to convince you that that is true, not because I say so, but because Jesus says so. And I hope, secondly, to maybe try to ease some of the fears and insecurities that might keep you at times from speaking into someone's life and bringing the hope of Christ to another person. So as we go to the Gospel of John, I'll invite you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 4 in your copy of the Scriptures. If you're using the ESV story 
Bible, uh, those green and brown Bibles on the chairs, I think it's around page 738, something like that. Fourth book in the New Testament. We're going to pick up uh, right after Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at, at Jacob's well, where we've been the last couple of weeks. And she has gone back into the town to tell the villagers about the Christ. Come meet a man who told me all I ever did. And the disciples return and Jesus interacts with his disciples about what had just happened. And in this conversation and how this story kind of unfolds, we're going to learn a really important truth for us in joining Jesus on mission. And here it is. God doesn't need you to save the world. He just needs you to play your part. He doesn't need you to save the world. He just needs you to play your part. What is the part that God is calling you as an individual to play in the work of evangelism, the work of missions, the work of joining Jesus on this mission? So obviously that brings up questions, well, what is my part? How can I know my part? How can I faithfully play my part? And I think we'll see answers to those questions as we walk through this text. So let's just pick up where we left off uh, and actually we'll back up a hair. So look in verse 27. This is where the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman has ended. And it ended with Jesus saying, I am the Messiah, right? I am he. So she says, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us, all things. And he says, I who speak to you am he. And verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Or perhaps why are you drinking water from her bucket? Like there's reasons for them to be perplexed, but they, they hold back. They don't voice their concern to Jesus, but they're kind of privately having these thoughts. And we see that the woman then left when the disciples returned, left to go into the village to tell other people about Jesus. So the disciples come back. They've been in, into the nearby town to get food. So they've come back with lunch. They've set the food before Jesus. And apparently Jesus is slow uh, to receive the food and eat the food because it tells us in verse 31 that they were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And any mom who has prepared a meal for her family only to have her kids pick at it and make weird faces and not eat. It can probably feel the pain of the disciples at this point. We just went into the Samaritan town, not our favorite place to go, and bought you food, and this is the thanks I get. Right, you could, you could hear, the, hear the frustration. Anyway, and so Jesus is not eating, and they're saying, come on, why aren't you eating? And so he gives them this answer, this, this interesting, strange answer in verse 31 he said or verse 32 he says i have food to eat that you do not know about once again jesus is going to use an earthly physical analogy uh, for a spiritual truth and once again his audience is not going to get it right so at, at, at the cleansing of the temple he said destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days i will rebuild it in three days and of course, he wasn't speaking about the temple. He was speaking about himself and his death and his resurrection. But his audience didn't get it. It took us 46 years to build this. Did the same thing with Nicodemus when he said, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, how can a man be born when he's old? It's not possible. And just to the woman at the well earlier in chapter 4, he had said, 
if you, would a- if you asked me, I would give you living water and you would never be thirsty again. She said, oh, let me have that water so that I don't have to keep coming to this well. So he keeps using these physical analogies for spiritual truths and people are not quite following him. And so the same thing happens here. He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And so they start to wonder, well, how did he, did someone else bring him food? Did that Samaritan woman maybe feed him? Like what the heck is going on? And so Jesus clues them in to what he means. He says there in verse 32, 34, excuse me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Here's the first way that you can play your part in God's work, the work that he's called you to do. The first way you can play your part is prioritize Jesus' mission. Prioritize Jesus' mission. See the mission of Jesus in your life as the most important thing about your life. The most important thing that your life could be about is the mission of Jesus. So the mission that God had given Jesus was so important to him that it was like nourishment for his soul. He's able to compare it to food. Of course, we need food just for the basic necessities of staying alive, right? We have to feed our bodies or our bodies stop functioning. And in the same way, Jesus says, my food, my spiritual food, if you will, is to do the will of my father, the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. It reminds me of Jesus' words to the devil in Matthew chapter four, when he had been in the wilderness for 40 days um, fasting and Satan comes to him and he says, I bet you're pretty hungry. Why don't you turn this this stone into a loaf of bread and you can fill your stomach. And Jesus responded to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so in that same way where he says, I'm, pu- I'm turning away the, t- the, the temptation really of, of physical food in favor of living on God's word, here he uses that same analogy to say, doing God's work doing the will of the father and accomplishing his mission is the most important thing to him and it's like food for him so let me let me ask you this shouldn't following jesus at least mean that the things that jesus cares about are important to us too if we're following jesus don't you think that we should be about the things that jesus is about Jesus says that fulfilling the mission of God the Father is so important to him that it's like food for his soul. And if it's that important to Jesus, maybe we ought to take it seriously too. Maybe he intends for us to take his mission into our own lives. And in fact, he uh, did not leave that a mystery for us. He tells us very explicitly throughout the New Testament. So when he called his first disciples, if you remember, like in Luke 5 and a couple other places you can read about it, he says to Peter and James and John, who are fishermen, he says, follow me and I will what? What does he say? I will make you fishers of men, right? So leave your fishing job and be fishers of men. So that was the, that was the whole premise of, of their discipleship. The journey of following Jesus was, I'm going to train you, transform you, equip you to fish for people, right? To to go and bring people in. He said that from the very beginning. Then at the end of his ministry, he's, he's been crucified and raised, and he's about to go back into heaven. He tells his disciples in Matthew 28, what we now call the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the very beginning of the, of the call to discipleship includes... I am going to transform you into those who fish for people, those who are on my mission of bringing people to God. And then at the very end of his ministry, he's about to go to heaven. He gives them this kind of closing commission. Go, make disciples, right? Bring people in, bring people along. And then same, a very similar thing uh, just before he went to heaven. He told them in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, in Judea, which is the region in, uh, where Jerusalem was located, and Samaria, which is where they're at right now in John 4. And remember how the Jews feel about Samaria. They don't, they'd really rather not be there. They can't really envision God uh, loving or saving or helping the people of Samaria. But Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's all nations, right? Like from the Great Commission, go and make disciples. So that is the fundamental reality of Jesus' life and ministry on earth is doing the will of the one who sent him, doing the work of God the Father. So what does that mean? What is the work of God the Father? We get a glimpse of that down in verse 36 where he says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. And I think that phrase, gathering fruit for eternal life, is a pretty good summary of what the mission of Jesus really is. The mission of Jesus is to carry the good news that dead, lost sinners can find new life and eternal hope through faith in Jesus Christ and in bringing people into a relationship with Jesus, inviting people into this kind of relationship. That was what was most important to Jesus, making disciples. And if we're going to follow him, then we have to be about making disciples. Our mission is to go on a journey of following Jesus and to invite others to come along with us. That's really kind of what it comes down to. And this has to be our spiritual food. We got to see this as this is what we're about. This is how we live. We need to see our lives as part of Jesus' mission to gather fruit for eternal life, to bring people to him. We have been sent. And so my prayer for myself and for our imprint family is that we would grow to the place where we could say along with Jesus, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. But Jesus expands a bit on his mission and the joy of seeing the fruit of his labor. Look in verse 35. He says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Now, this is a little bit of an interesting phrase. Um, it's not entirely clear what we should make of the four months if we're trying to be real specific. Uh, from an ag agricultural perspective, it takes longer than four months from the time you sow the seed to the time it's ready to be harvested. So he may not be speaking in, in like a literal kind of a, this is how farming works kind of a way. But he's, he does seem to be speaking about the gap. So when someone sows a seed, there's time and there's, se there's seasons and the ground has to do things and the weather has to do things and the farmer has to do things to cultivate the ground and all that. There's a time that passes before that seed is ready to sprout and be harvested. So he says, this is the way that things work. There's this gap. There's this time. And then he says, but I say to you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white 
for harvest. So in this case, Jesus, uh, in the case of Jesus sowing the seeds of the gospel in the hope of cultivating eternal life, now is the time for harvest. And so for those who are sowing seeds, there could be this long period of time that you're waiting. But I say to you, lift up your eyes and see right now that the fields are white for harvest. Now I, so he says, verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. I think he's talking about the Samaritan woman who has just turned her heart over to him and the harvest of Samaritans that are now on their way to the well to meet Jesus. Because that's what we learn happens in in this next part of the story. So the woman has gone off to the village and then as soon as Jesus is done with this conversation with the disciples, a crowd of Samaritans is going to be upon him. And they're going to be talking with Jesus and inviting him to stay, all right? And so I think when he says, look, lift up your eyes and look, I don't think he's speaking in like a general, like, can you envision the fields? I think he's saying, check it out. There's already a harvest from the seed that I just sowed. I sowed the seed with this Samaritan woman. She has gone and reaped the harvest, if you will, of the people in this village in Samaria. And they're all coming to me now. And so I think he's saying, they are ready to receive him. So when he says they're the white for harvest, maybe, maybe they appeared white kind of on the horizon as they were approaching him, not exactly sure. Uh, but in this kind of analogy, using the, the sowing and the reaping and the harvesting analogy for spiritual fruit, Jesus is the sower because he's just sowed the seeds of the gospel and of eternal life with this Samaritan woman. The woman is the reaper, right? She's gone into the village to gather uh, Samaritans from the local village, and they are the harvest, right? So the, the fruit of the sowing and the reaping is the harvest of these people from Samaria who are coming out to Jesus. And Jesus, I love this, he points out the joy of those who play their respective roles in harvesting of spiritual fruit. He says, that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Verse 37, he says, For this saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. And here we find the second way that we can play our part in the mission of God in our lives, and that's this. Embrace your role. So you prioritize Jesus' mission. You see Jesus' mission as the most important thing that your life can be about. And then you're going to embrace your role. What is the role that God has you to play? God doesn't need you to save the world. He just needs you to play your part. Think about the game of football or any kind of team sport like that. What does a football player going onto the field need to do? Does he need to play all the positions and win the game all by himself? Whose position does he have to play? His own. All he has to do is play his position to know where he's supposed to be on the field, what role he has to play within the the greater context of the game, know where the other people on his team are and what they're doing, and play his position. And if everyone is playing their position well, then the team has a good chance of, of winning the game. Think about a band. Keith, how many parts do you have to play in a symphony? Just one. Which part? Yours, right? So Keith, as a trumpet player, doesn't have to play the oboe part or the violin part. Thank goodness. I think they'd probably 
That would be hard for us to hear. Anyway, um, just play your part, right? You, all you got to do is know this is my place in the context of the symphony or the, the musical piece or whatever. And I'm just going to play my part as faithfully and effectively as I can and trust that everyone else is doing their part and that the conductor is leading the way. And the result of all of that is beautiful music. It's, it's a symphony, right? I can't do a symphony all by myself, but I can play my part. I can play the notes on my page with the dynamic markings that it says for me and count well and come in when I'm supposed to come in and stop when I'm supposed to stop. I do my part and all together it makes beautiful music. Same thing is true in the carrying out of the mission of Jesus. God doesn't expect you to save the world. I hope you know that. In fact, God doesn't even expect you to save a person because that's God's work. He's the one who changes a heart. He's the one, just like Jesus said in John 3, the Holy Spirit blows where he wants. You can't see him coming. You don't know where he's going, but you feel his effects because when he comes, new life happens. Rebirth happens. That's the work of God. Look at verse 38. He says, I sent you. Now he's speaking to his disciples, I think more broadly, about him kind of sending them uh, to carry the gospel. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So it could be that somebody else was the one who sowed the seed, tilled the soil and sowed the seed and watered the ground and made sure that everything was good. And then you come along when it's time for harvest and go, oh, look, there's a plant. And you pluck it. Look what I did. You just entered the labor of somebody else who sowed and watered and tilled and did all the stuff necessary for that plant to come to life. And you are just going to take the credit for being the one who just like plucks it out of the ground. He says, I have sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. You are not the one who did all the work necessary for a person to hear and receive and respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your efforts to lead someone to faith in Jesus, you might be the reaper. The reaper being the one who has the joy of seeing a person turn his heart over to Jesus and name him as Lord. And I hope that you will have that experience. I hope all of us will have that experience more and more as we find ourselves living on mission with Jesus. But sometimes, and I might even suggest most times, you'll be a sower. And probably not the only sower, but one of many. Who knows how many touches of grace, kindness, truth, and care a person may have to receive before his heart is ready to receive the truth of the gospel. There was uh, a woman uh, in our church in Houston named Mary, who uh, she was a faithful, dear follower of Jesus, and she's very involved in the church. And, um, and her husband, they've been married for, I don't know, I'm thinking of Mary and Carr, 20, 30 years, more than that probably. Uh, so Mary had come to faith in Christ at some point years ago, a couple of decades ago. Uh, and her husband had not yet come to faith. And so when we knew her, she had been praying for her husband to receive Christ for something like 20 years. Just praying and pleading with God, will you please save my husband? Putting him on prayer lists at the church. Please pray that God would save my husband. Faithfully living out the life of a follower of Jesus uh, in, in his sight. And like 20 years later, he finally came to faith in Jesus. As an older man, he was like in his 70s when he trusted Jesus for the first time. After 20 years of 
prayer and faithful labor and sowing of seed. You have no idea how much a person is going to need before the moment is there, before the harvest is ready, and that person responds in faith to Christ. You know, I read a study this week that suggests that the average number of times a person will hear the gospel message about Jesus crucified for sinners, risen from the dead to bring new life, and the offer of repentance and faith for new life, someone would have to hear the gospel message an average of five to six times before he accepts it as true and receives Jesus as Savior. So we need to be sowing the seed, right? I mean, it, there, there's no other way around that. We, we need to be faithfully taking our opportunities that God brings us to sow the seed. And we have no guarantee that our seed will be the one that, you know, yields the crop before our eyes, so to speak. But we ought to faithfully, diligently work to plant seeds of gospel hope in people's lives and trust that God is going to bring about the fruit that he intends. And if someone else gets the joy of seeing that person trust in Jesus as Savior, then we as sowers get to rejoice along with the reaper. It's not a competition, right? It's not a, oh, I, yeah, sure, you got him to pray the prayer, but like I was talking to him about Jesus for five years, right? So we're having this competition about who did more. Oh my goodness, I think we'd do well to listen to the, the Apostle Paul, who himself had a life-changing, history-shaping, church-forming kind of ministry, we'd all agree, in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 7, and talking about different teachers and people who played different roles in the church in Corinth. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So this is not about who gets the credit, who did the harder work, who did the really important, played the most important step in bringing a person to faith in Jesus, because it ain't about the sower and it ain't about the reaper. It's about God alone who gives growth. So play your part. Your job is not to save anybody. Just do what God calls you to do. Take the opportunities that God puts into your path, into your life. Think about the relationships that you have with people who don't know Christ. And ask the Lord to show you, Lord, will you open my eyes to an opportunity just to speak truth and love and grace into this person's life. And I'm not saying every time it has to be like a whole gospel presentation. Words of affirmation, a prayer of support, uh, just a kind word or encouragement when someone is down in the name of Jesus. All of those things can play a part in sort of cultivating a heart that, that, that is soft and ready to receive the truth of the gospel. Jesus is always the one that's at work cultivating hearts. And when we play our part, we are entering into his labor. So when he says you're entering into someone else's labor, that's what he's talking about, I think. He's saying, I'm the one that's at work, really, all the time, behind the scenes, in ways you can't see, in 10,000 ways you have no idea about. I am always at work. And when I put somebody in your path, I'm just inviting you to put your hand in just have a, a part in the work that I'm doing in people's hearts. And we just get to reap the harvest of a soul resting for the first time on Jesus Christ for salvation.
Know your part. Embrace your role. So we prioritize Jesus' mission. We see, you know, making disciples and bringing people into uh, the family of God is the most important thing to Jesus. And so it needs to be the most important thing in my life. I need to see my life as on mission with Jesus. And I need to remember that I don't have to save anybody. I don't have to rescue the world. I just need to play the part that God has me to play, to know my role and embrace my role. The story continues in verse 39. So he's just kind of finished this speech, if you will, these these words to his disciples about labor and sowing and reaping. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so here's another really important way that you can partner with Jesus' mission by playing your part. Tell your story. Tell your story. Never underestimate the power of your personal story, of your journey to faith in Jesus. Verse 39, many Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony. She went to the village and she told them about her conversation with Jesus. Come and meet a man who told me all I ever did, she said. So she tells them about it and she invites them. Come and see this man. And many believed because of her testimony. Greg Laurie in his book, Tell Someone, says a person can argue all day with you about certain facts, but they cannot argue with your personal story of how you came to faith. Know your story. Use your story. God has given you a powerful tool in your missional toolkit, if you will. And it's the story of Jesus' work in your own life and of your personal journey of faith with him. Learn it. Craft it. Share it. Understand what your story is and what God is doing in your life and how he brought you to faith in him. And then be ready to to tell that story whenever somebody asks or whenever you have opportunity to share it. You know, I was born and raised in a Christian home. My parents were were devout followers of Jesus, and so we were in church all the time growing up, um, and I heard the gospel, I don't know how many times as a young kid, and I was actually probably six years old or so uh, when I I trusted Jesus for the first time, recognized uh, my need for a Savior, uh, and, and put my faith in Jesus. But then I spent my high school years kind of my teenage years, uh, trying to fit in with my peers, uh, trying to be uh, seen as, as cool, or uh, I failed miserably, by the way, but uh, I kept trying to, to fit in. And that, that effort to like be respected or appreciated or accepted by my peers led to just being worldly. I just made bad decisions. I did things just like the world did. And every week, I would come back to church on Sunday morning And I would just be racked with guilt and shame over the way that I had spent the week, not really regarding God and his glory and what he wants for my life, but more like, how can I get what I'm after? How can I uh, be accepted and liked and approved of by my peers? And I just, I was certain that God was ashamed of me. Every time I came to church, he was like, what are you doing here? You don't need to be here. Don't even come to me. Don't even bother. Well, during my college years, it was through some faithful Bible teachers and really a group of friends that were passionate about following Jesus in their own life, that God began to unveil to me that I had self-righteously based my relationship with God on my own spiritual performance. How am I measuring up? How am I 
checking off the boxes, if you will, of, of Christian duty. I had slipped into a legalistic mindset that says, do these Christian duties and God will accept you. And if you fail to do them or you do these bad things over here, God will be ashamed of you. That is what I had been believing functionally for many years. So when I came to church or when I tried to pray, I just felt, I just felt guilty and gross and that God wasn't even really interested in me. The Lord began to pull that mindset away. And I began to take to heart the truth of Romans 8.1. I don't know if you know Romans 8.1, but you should. It says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are a follower of Christ, if you have trusted in him for salvation, and you are related to God as your father through faith in Jesus, condemnation is gone. He's not looking at me with this angry kind of finger wagging uh, and going, Carlson, you screwed up again. You better get your act together. That's not how God looks at you if you're a follower of Jesus. Condemnation is gone. And so I started to allow myself to approach God with, with a little bit more confidence on the basis not of my own spiritual performance, but on the basis of the blood and righteousness of Jesus He shed his blood for me. He rose from the dead for my justification, Romans chapter 4 says. That's really the gospel, right? You don't come to God on your own merits, on your own goodness, your own righteousness. You come to God on Jesus' merits, on Jesus' righteousness, and the penalty that he paid for your sin. And if you've come to God with your eye on that, and you're just saying, I'm with Jesus. What's his is mine his righteousness for me, his death in my place. If that's how you come to God, you're his kid. And what parent would ever stiff arm his kid who's coming back to him? No, he's like this, come in, come back to me. And it was really, it's the sense of freedom that I have found in the gospel. This, the freedom of knowing that even when I mess up, because I do and I know that I will, Even when I mess up, I can come back to God and he accepts me and he loves me and he helps me. Yeah, he says, go and sin no more, right? And I'm gonna maybe give you some tools and equipment and relationships that can help you uh, to change in the ways that you need to change. But, But I love you and I'm for you and I want you to come. It's really that sense of freedom that drives me in ministry. I want others to experience that freedom. I want other people to know God through Jesus because it's so much more peaceful and joyful than trying to measure up to God's standards, trying to earn your way back into favor, if you will, uh, with God. Well, your story is different than mine, and that's good. All of our stories are different and must be different and should be different because God is at work in 10,000 different ways, leading people to himself. So what is your story? Think about your life. Know what your story is. Give thanks to God for your story and tell it. Tell your story. Whenever you have opportunity and you have somebody who's willing to listen, hey, can I tell you about the hope that I found in Jesus Christ? And just tell them your story and let God work. Just like he, he brought these many Samaritans, we don't know how many exactly, but many Samaritans came to Jesus because of this woman's story. So tell your story, and who knows what God might do. Well, when the Samaritans came to Jesus at the well, they asked him to stay, 
And so he did. Look at verse 40. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. We emphasized at the start of chapter 4 how, how many sort of strong and deep cultural and religious barriers that Jesus had broken just in engaging this Samaritan woman in conversation and asking for a drink of water and having a theological conversation with her. Can you imagine all of the cultural and religious barriers that Jesus would break by staying with them for two days? He's got to accept their hospitality. He's got to sleep in their homes. He's sharing food that they've cooked, drinking water from whatever vessels they're serving, having conversation after conversation with these people. How many barriers must Jesus have broken in order to show himself to these Samaritans? And it doesn't tell us, you know, how, uh, how the disciples exactly felt about staying there for a couple of days, as perplexed as they were to find Jesus just talking with a woman. So you can imagine that they might not have been too pleased about it, but I think they learned an important lesson. I think they learned that no matter what barriers we place in the way that might keep someone from knowing Jesus, he's willing to break through it. He's willing to tear those things down. The mission of Jesus will carry him far beyond the bounds of Jewish identity and culture, far beyond the accepted norms and cliques of their day, far beyond where they were comfortable. So I think the question comes to us, will we allow Jesus to lead us to people and situations that penetrate our comfort zones and break our personal bubbles and all of the boundaries that we kind of put in place. This is what I will do. This is what's acceptable. This is how I live. This is who I'll talk to. This is where I'll go, where I won't go. Are we willing to follow Jesus through those barriers, be they cultural or religious or political or social or status or whatever kind of barriers we put up and follow him to take his love and the hope of his living water to the thirsty souls that are around us every day? no matter what it costs us. I hope we'll grow to where we're willing to do that, no matter what. Well, so the result of the two days that Jesus spends with the Samaritans is profound, and it provides us with a good reminder. Look at verses 41 and 42. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Friend, you have to experience Jesus for yourself. It's not enough to know know Jesus vicariously through someone else. It's, It's not enough that you grew up going to church. Kids, it's not enough that your parents are Christians or take you to church. It's not enough that you're... You have a brother that's a pastor. It's not even enough that you know a lot about the Bible and can answer a lot of tough theological questions or that you live a moral life. Those things are not enough. At the end of the day, you have to come to God through your own faith in Jesus. Just like these Samaritans, I no longer believe because of what you said, but because of what I have seen and heard for myself. I have experienced Jesus. Let me just ask you today. Have you experienced Jesus for yourself? Have you trusted 
for salvation on the basis of your own faith in him and not through some inherited righteousness that you envision from your parents or your family or your upbringing or the lifestyle that you lead or any of those things? Have you trusted in Jesus and experienced him for yourself? The offer's there. Just like Jesus extended the invitation to the woman at the well, there's living water. You'll never thirst again. It becomes in you a spring welling up to eternal life. The gift of eternal life is there for the taking, but you have to take it. You have to receive it by faith. You have to come to God through Jesus and say, because of Jesus' sinless life, and because of Jesus' death on a cross for my sins, and because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead to secure a place and a standing and a home forever, and I want him to come into my life and to change me and to to redeem me and to make me his own. You have the opportunity to do that even today. So as we close today, if, if you feel the Lord speaking to your heart in this way, you've never taken the step to trust in Jesus as Savior, to confess him as Lord with your mouth and to believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. The Bible says if you do that, you'll be saved. So don't leave here today without getting that settled. Come talk to me or to Lindsay or any one of our uh, regular team members. We would love to, to have a conversation with you if that's where you are today.